Well, we've got two more verses left in the book of Jude. We've only been on it since the, book, uh, since the month of December, and it's only one page in our Bible, 25 verses in all. But we'll try our best to finish it up tonight, and then beginning next Wednesday night, and over the next five Wednesday nights in the month of, uh, of May, we'll be doing some special studies, uh, looking at some different things, different topics, rather than going through a book in the Bible. And then uh, in June, we'll begin, of course, with the first Sunday, our gospel meeting. Brother Larry Acuff will be here uh, from over in Georgia. And then on the following Wednesday night, which will be the second Wednesday night in the, in the month of June, we'll begin our summer series. And, of course, uh, the, uh, uh, the summer series this year is the why. That's what it's entitled, and it's the why questions that are found in the Bible. And so we've got a good lineup. We've got several good speakers who are coming. And so we look forward to studying from those questions. That's been our theme, of course, all year on Sundays. And we'll do that, uh, some of those why questions on Wednesday nights. Hope you have your Bible open now to the book of Jude. Verse number 24 is where we want to begin tonight. We have come to the close of the book of Jude, and that's what uh, Jude is doing. He is, he's wrapping things up. So as we look beginning there in verse 24, he says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. When we look at it, as he begins there, he simply says, now. And so uh, it may be that you have a translation that has a different word. Some translations say, but, or something of that effect. But uh, he is, he's introducing the last thing. The last, uh, uh, he's closing it out. It's a doxology, if you will. And, and so he's closing things out. Okay. Let's break it down. Let's talk about it and think about what, uh, what he says here in these last few verses. He, he, a couple of verses. He has, uh, he has a lot to say uh, just in a short amount of time. And so, uh, now to him who is able. Him who is able. When you think about that word able, you know, it, it's a word that should be familiar to us, uh, uh, even in the original uh, language. It, it's the word dunamai from which we get our word dynamite. And so it, of course, has reference to power. God has the power. He has the strength. He has the might, if you will, to do some things. Okay. Now, what I want us to do before we actually talk about what he says here, uh, what he's able to keep us from doing here, I want us to go back and look at two other passages from the New Testament. Go back to the uh, book of... Uh, uh, of uh, Romans chapter 16 at verse 25. I lost my, my book there for a second. Romans chapter 16 at verse 25. And we'll read, whoever gets there, go ahead and read that to us. And notice what uh, Paul has to say. We've got Jude writing here, but Paul uses the exact same wording, except he emphasizes something different, what God is able to do. Okay, God or He is able to establish you. What does that word establish mean? 
Anybody have a different translation of the word establish? English Standard says, He who is able to strengthen you. That's the concept that we're looking at when he says uh, that he's going to establish us. He's going to give us the strength. He's going to give us the stability uh, to be able to stand and, and to, uh, to, to do the things that he has reference to there in regard to the revelation of Jesus Christ, especially to the apostles. But, but notice there, and let's just take the easier word. Let's take the word strengthen. Now, to him who has the power... He who has the dynamite to make you stronger, to give you the strength to be able to stand and to do those things. And so uh, consider that. He, he talks about that God is able to give us strength as well. He has the power to give us strength. Okay? Now look at Ephesians chapter 3 at verse number 20. Ephesians chapter 3 at verse number 20. Two times in the New Testament when this passage or this, uh, this phrase is used. Okay? So what does is, what is Paul write there in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power and work within us. Okay? If I were to ask you this afternoon, what is the greatest thing that you can imagine that God can do? Uh, what, what is the, you know, if you're thinking about in your mind, the greatest thing imaginable, the most powerful thing that God could ever do, what would you say that, that, that that's the best you can do in your imagination? What's the most powerful thing you've ever seen that God has set in motion? In, anybody? Do what? Okay, Salvation. No, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking in right now, you know, things that God uh, is in control of and can do. Anybody ever seen the aftermath of a tornado or a hurricane? Uh, anybody seen anything strange sometimes that may have happened in a tornado, for example? Maybe a pine needle that's driven through a two-by-four or... Something of that nature, cars that have been lifted, trucks and trains that have been turned over, you know, all those kind of things. Just imagine the power sometimes that we think of, the power of nature. And imagine the most powerful storm that you can. We, we, you know, when we're living around here, it hadn't been a couple of weeks ago, there were some storms that came through and they were saying that there were 70 mile per hour winds. I drove to Fed on Sunday, and uh, down 102, there were a number of trees that had been blown down. They'd cut them out of the road, but they were still on the side, big trees that had been blown down. And, and all of us have seen the destruction that goes on. But now, what's the greatest thing that you can imagine? The storm or Jesus standing in a boat and saying to a storm, peace be still? Now, which one, which one is more powerful, the storm or the God? And, and, and as you're thinking about those things, what Paul is saying is we don't even have the intelligence. We don't have the ability to understand and comprehend just how powerful God is. Notice what he says here in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, or chapter 3 at verse 20. 
Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or even think. Okay? But now let's go back and let's focus on a phrase. That's what, that's what we're spending a little bit of time on. God is able to do. God is able. Okay? He's able to do more than we ask or think. He is able to strengthen us. Now let's go back to Jude. Now to him who is able to, what does he promise here? What does he say that he is able to do here? Keep us from what? To keep us from stumbling. The word translated stumbling there is a word which means to stumble so as to fall. Okay? It's not, it's, not just a, it's not just sort of a stagger thing, but it's a big stumble. Okay? Sometimes you can, you can sort of get off balance and everything's good. And sometimes you stumble so much that it doesn't make any difference what you do, where you're going. You're going down. It, I've seen folks, it took them 30 or 40 feet to fall. You know, they started, they started falling here, and they just kept going, kept going. And finally, they hit the ground. They were trying. But you know what, what Jude says? God has the power to give us the strength. That's what Paul says. God has the power to give us the strength, Jude says, even in every situation that we may be in when we think, that we can't handle it without turning away or doing something wrong. God has the strength, even in those times that we don't even imagine that anything could keep us from doing it, but God has the strength to keep us from falling. That's what you get when you put those three passages together, when you get what Paul said and what Jude said. And so, as we look at it here, to to keep us from stumbling so as to fall here in this passage. Now, what else? He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and. And. That's a conjunction, isn't it? And so it ties two things together. So what is the other thing, you know, that that God has the power to do for us? To present us blameless. How many of us in here are blameless? I mean, we made a mistake somewhere along the way, haven't we? In something or another, not everybody makes the same ones, but we all make mistakes. And so, the Bible says God has the power to present you blameless. And before we get to the blameless part, let's talk about the present you. That's a term in the original language when, uh, when we look at it and define it from there that literally, literally means to cause to stand. To cause to stand. Now, what did he say prior to that? To keep you from stumbling, but also to keep you standing up. Okay? To cause you to stand. That's... That's the, uh, the term in the original. That's what he has to say. To cause us to stand. To present you. Now, look at Matthew chapter 4, verse number 5. 
Matthew chapter 4, verse number 5. And this will, have, this will shed a little additional light along with the second verse that we'll look at. It'll shed a little additional light on this idea, this concept of presenting you or causing you to stand. Okay? Who's got uh, Matthew 4, verse 5? Okay, what did he do on the pinnacle of the temple? He set, S-E-T, him on the pinnacle of the temple. The word translated set is the same word that we have here, present. Present. What did the devil do to Jesus on the pinnacle of the temple? He took him and caused him to do what? What did we say the word meant? To cause to stand. He took him and caused him to stand on the pinnacle of the temple. Okay? Now look at another one. Look at uh, Matthew chapter 18 at verse number 2. Matthew 18 verse 2. Okay? Calling a little child, he had him do what? Stand among them. Okay? Translated stand there, but if you're reading from the English Standard, uh, let's see, what does he say? He put him in the midst of them. Okay? That's the English Standard. Translated stand, correctly translated, okay? Because that's what the word means. But, but here's what I want to ask. What did, what did Jesus do to the little child? What did he do to the little child? I mean, it's not a, not a hard question. He just, he made him, made him stand here. Why? Had the little child been naughty? No, he put him there to show him off. The devil took Jesus up on the temple, not necessarily to show him off, but to show off all the things that, that he could see. Jesus put the child there to show him off to all of those, and then, of course, he had a message that went with it. And so the same concept is being presented here when he says, present you blameless. You see, where are we going to be presented? Where are we going to be made to stand? If you keep reading in that, uh, that verse, where are we going to be, uh, be made to stand? In the presence of His glory. You see, what the Bible says is God is able. He has the power, and of course we'll see in just a minute in verse 25 that through Jesus, He has the power to present us, to make us stand in front of God, and when God looks at us, there is nothing that He can point His finger at and say, you're lost. Through His blood, cleansed every sin, every stain that we had in our life. He is able, He has the power to cause us literally to stand in front of God and God can accuse us because we are blameless. Now that ought to mean something to us. Don't sometimes we go to bed at night, some folks go to bed at night fearful, 
I wonder if I'm saved. I, I wonder if God can save a person like me. Now, the God who is capable, who is able, who has the power to do more than I ever can imagine, that's what Paul said, isn't it? That's how much he had. He is able to make me stand in front of God in a blameless situation. What about the word blameless? Well, the word blameless is a word which means uh, unblemished. Of course, without blame, unblemished. Look at two passages. To, uh, well, that's actually, we're going to look at about uh, two or three passages. Look at Hebrews 9, verse 14, where the word is used. And again, we're looking at these, and we'll tie them together with what is said by Jude here in verse 24. Hebrews 9, 14. How was Jesus able to offer himself without blemish? And so the one who is without blemish offered himself. Look at, uh, look at 1 Peter 1.19. 1 Peter 1.19. Talks about how we've been redeemed. By the blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or without spot. The precious blood of Christ came from the one who was without blemish, therefore his blood was without blemish, was it not? Okay. Now look at uh, Colossians 1 verse 22. <clears throat> all looking, all using the same, the same word, original word. We've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ and put where? Among all those who have been redeemed, all those who have been saved. Now what does he say in Colossians 1.22? Somebody jump on there and go. Okay. So Jesus, the unblemished one, died, shed his unblemished blood so that he could put us where? In the body, which is, of course, if we look at, uh, uh, keep looking there in Colossians, the body is the church. He, he shed his precious blood, his unblemished blood, put us there for what purpose? End of that verse. To be able to present us blameless and above reproach before him. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, that's a passage that talks about husbands loving their wives. But 
If you go all the way down to verse number 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Without blemish. And so God has the power, and again, I'm going ahead of what he said here, through his Son to stand us in front of God. And God can't point his finger at us because by the action that he has taken on our behalf and with our obedience in regard to what he has done, we can stand before God. His church can stand before him like a bride in a white dress without any blemish whatsoever. God will not blame us. Okay? And then, we've already hinted at this and talked about it, before the presence of His glory. That literally means directly in front of or in the sight of. Directly in front of or in the sight of. Okay? 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17 we're not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity and commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. That's what Paul, one of the apostles, had to say. God was watching what they were saying. He was providing them the words in the first century, was He not, through the Spirit? And they were speaking those things, and God was taking note of because they were literally in His sight speaking in Christ. Colossians 1 verse 22. Uh, we just read that passage, but again, notice the, the term uh, at the end of the verse uh, that He's going to present us holy and blameless and above reproach before standing Him directly or us directly in the presence of God. And so, you know, that's an awesome thought that one day, you know, we pray to God, yet we haven't seen Him. We believe in God, and yet we haven't seen We've seen His work. And we believe that uh, wherever there's a, a design, there has to be a designer. And we believe the testimony of the apostles and those people of the first century who saw Jesus, who saw the miracles that He performed, who saw Him after He rose from the dead. We, we believe all of that. But you know, one day to stand in His presence... To be there with Him, directly in front of Him, as this passage tells us. That is an awesome thought. And while I'm there, don't even have to worry about it. But Jude is not finished. To stand us or present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. With great joy. The word means exultation. Specially welcome, gladness, extreme joy. Now listen to me. The word joy in the English Standard Version is used 60 times in the English Standard Version. Just the little three-letter word joy. It's used 60 times in the, in the English Standard Version. The word that's used here is a part of those 60 times, but the word that's used here is only used five times in the entire New Testament. It is a different word from the word that's translated joy the majority of the time. This is a special joy. This is 
an extreme type of joy that Jude is writing about here. Now let me give you an example, two examples rather. Let me give you two examples where this kind of joy is used. Go back in your Bible to the book of Luke chapter 1 at verse 44. Luke chapter 1 verse 44. And we'll see a different kind of joy than what we generally think of when we think of joy. Okay, somebody got it? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb believed for joy. Okay, so when Mary went to see Martha, what happened? Martha, or Elizabeth rather, I don't know, I got the wrong, got the wrong one. When Mary went to see Elizabeth, I knew who it was. Who was in her womb? What baby? John. And what did that baby do? In the presence of God, I mentioned this Sunday morning, in the presence of God, he had joy. Because the Son of God was in the womb of Mary. An extreme kind. When we think about babies... You know, we can make some of them laugh, especially after they get just a few months old. We, we can make them giggle and do all those kind of things. But here's one that is leaping for joy in the womb. Now, again, that's different kind of joy, isn't it, than what we generally think about. Look at another passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 46. We probably don't, uh, <clears throat> probably would not catch this. Normally. Acts 2, verse 46. So continue daily with one accord in the temple, and break the bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and sympathy. All right. With glad or joyful and generous hearts. The word glad is our word. Now, what does that say about the first century Christians and what they were doing? Where did they go? They went to the temple. They broke bread in their homes. They received their food with joyous hearts. What kind of relationship did the first century Christians have with one another? Yeah. Our relationship, the point I want to make is, our relationship with one another should give us greater joy, more extreme joy, than anything else in the world. Being with any other group in the world. When these people were together and they were eating together and they were being together, they had more joy in those times. They had that extreme joy, the kind of joy that John the baby, John the baby baptizer, had when he leaped in the womb. The kind of joy that Jude is writing about here. I said there's only five times when that word is used. And so we need to, you know, to make application of Acts chapter 2 verse 46, we really need to grow close as brothers and sisters in Christ. Closer than, than, than probably we do. I'm not saying that, that we're not close. I'm not saying that we don't weep and cry, you know, when the others weep and cry or happy when others are... Are, are, are happy, you know, we, we have joy with them. But, but what, what Acts chapter 2 is pointing to 
is the idea of that is the most exciting time that we have, the most extreme joy that we have, is when we as brothers and sisters are together, not just on Sunday. Mind you, he talks about here in verse 46 what they were doing during the week. Okay? And so it's that kind of joy. Now, let's go back here to Jude verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. That's in the dative sense in the, in the original language. And so who, who's the one who has the joy? I'm not asking you if you know what I mean when I say dative, but who, who had joy? When we're standing before God, which one's happy? What Jude is saying is we are. We have, we're like John, baby John. We're standing before God in front, directly in front of Him. And because we're standing there blameless through Jesus, we are the most happy people who have ever been. We have that extreme joy. What about those, on the other hand, who are not in our position and don't have the blood of Christ? If that brings us extreme joy, and that, then what would it bring to the person who is not saved? It's not specifically stated in those terms, but I think it's pretty obvious. They're going to have extreme sadness, extreme terror. Okay? But God, Jesus, is able to present us blameless before God. And we're the, we have the most, the most extreme kind of joy. Okay? Now, very quickly, we've got five minutes and a verse with about 15 different things in it. Larry, give me, click me up there one time. Verse 25, to the only God. Let's just break them down as we go real quick. Is the Bible, how many gods does the Bible speak of? There is one. Let me give you two verses, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. There are more. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? Okay, so there's a passage from the Old Testament. There's one God. Ephesians chapter 4, verse number uh, 6. And begins in verse 4 by talking about all those ones. But verse 6 is where we get to the one God and Father of all. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 at verse number 6. Pay pay some close attention to this one. I'll go ahead and read it. Yet for us there is one God, now watch this, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Who does he say the one God is? Who does Paul say? The Father. Okay? Now, Keep that in mind, and let's go back to Jude. To the only God, our Savior. To the only God, our Savior. Okay? Now, here the one God is identified as the Savior. Okay? Real quick, go back to the book of, uh, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 45, verse 15. Truly you are a God who hides yourself. O God of Israel, watch this, 
the Savior. O God of Israel, the Savior. Who's involved in our salvation? The one God, the only God, the one, who is it? Well, God the Father is involved in it, isn't he? If there's one God and God the Father, okay, what about God the Son? Well, yes, let's, let's, talk, our, let's talk our way through it. The only God, our Savior, now watch this, through Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord. How did God, the one God, become our Savior? T-H-R-O-U-G-H. Or if you're reading that in the original language, D-I-A. Dia. Last Thursday we were talking in our Bible class. We used the word dia. I don't even remember what passage we were looking at. Same concept was being taught. Dia means through. Means through. And I asked the class down there, third Thursday class, have you ever figured out the diameter or seen the diameter of a circle? Do you know what the diameter of a circle is? If you ask the radius of a circle, that's going all the way around it. The diameter, dia, dia, goes through it. There you go. There you go. Circumference. I knew my, my, it's up there. I just had to pull the right one up. I know the diameter though. That is the word which means through. And so God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the one God, through the avenue of Jesus, Saved us. Okay? Now not only, uh, there are other passages that, uh, that we could look at in regard to that, but uh, not only does he save us, but also, uh, what about how the glory and majesty and dominion and authority and all those things, how does that get back to God? I think he ties both of them together. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse number 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves as, uh, by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified, watch this, through Jesus Christ. Okay? So his salvation comes to us through Christ, but how, how, does our, how, does, how do we express the glory and the majesty and dominion and the authority, our acknowledgement of it back to God. It too is through Jesus Christ in one avenue. How do we pray? How do we pray? Just about every prayer, we end it in this way. We could put it at the beginning and it wouldn't do any damage. But how do we end our prayers? Not amen. In or through Jesus' name. We're going back to him through who? The one mediator, as Paul would write in the book of 1 Timothy. Okay? Four things that he mentions here. Glory, doxa, 
Glory, literally meaning uh, the, the, the radiance of light, as it were. To Him be glory. And as you look at that, all of these things point to, uh, to God's uh, uh, greatness. Everything uh, relates to that. Okay? So the splendor, the radiance of light, majesty, as in greatness and kingly majesty. Sometimes people will refer to a king or a queen as your majesty. Same kind of thought is here. Dominion uh, equals power. Uh, and it's, uh, it really suggests the control that God has over the world. It's his world and whatever he uh, wants to do, he, it's, it's his. And then finally, authority, which uh, expresses his total sovereignty. Um, he, he has the final say in everything. All right? Before all time, and now, and forever. Three different ages, if you will, that are indicated there. Before time, God was the same God. He, was, he deserved glory and majesty and dominion and authority. And now, at the present... Even 2,000 years ago when this was written, he deserved the glory and the majesty and the dominion and the authority. And how long will he deserve that? So, past, present, and future. All the way back in eternity. And there was no beginning, but back somewhere back there in eternity, God deserved all of these things. God deserves it right now. And on this side, as far as eternity stretches, and there is no end of it, just like there's no beginning, there's no end, God deserves all of these things. All right. Jude did his job in writing that small little book. We've spent a lot of time, so hopefully we have done our job in coming to understand it just a little bit better. Okay? We'll pick up with a different uh, topic next time.